Today we are going to be looking at a book that typically does not get touched on from the pulpit. Uh, we're still on an excursus from 1 Samuel. Uh, we will be looking at the, uh, the Song of Solomon. As you turn to the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, um, I've got a verse in mind that I was looking at yesterday that I'd like to bring up. Matthew 25, 21 says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Now my question is, does anybody else know the rest of that verse? Mm-hmm. And what else? That was good. You saw my post. <laughs> <laughs> That's huge. How often, how often do we focus on well done, good and faithful servant, and yet completely neglect that very last part of the verse that says, enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. So often you're focused on your very own works that completely neglect the joy of your master. The one who is completely pursued after you, and yet you're still thinking about what you can do. Very interesting. That was a crazy testimony about God's grace throughout the entirety of her life. Even in the midst of suffering, she is still saying, I'm clinging on to you. That was, seriously, thank you. That was an amazing testimony about God's grace and grasping onto a person's life. Focusing on the joy within the moments of suffering. So yes, well done, good and faithful servant. However, do not ever forget that last part. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. I say that by way of introduction because looking at the Song of Solomon... It's a book full of poeticism, crazy, crazy, intimate emotion in words that are going to, might be awkward. Words that are saying, I'm going to just draw you in to me. I'm going to draw you into my joy in spite of you and your works. I'm going to draw you in by my very grace. These are the words that we're looking at. But the interesting part is, it's called the Song of Solomon by title. The very first verse actually gives the actual title. It says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. Or Solomon's. So, first off, we're, meant, we're recognizing this is the Song of Songs. So in the Song of Songs, this is meaning like, you know, you've got, for this week, you're really liking the song Find You by Freedom Church or the next week, you're really liking Amanda Cook, uh, Never See the End. So you've got these different songs in your mind, but they're, you know, passing and, and fleeting. But this is Solomon, who was the son of David, who was a master at the harp, right? So he knows what it's like to hear a good tune and to have a good song, right? So Solomon himself is saying, yo, this, this, listen. Hear me out. This is a song of songs. Nothing is going to trump this. However, we also must recognize the very nature of this book is about covenantal, singular romanticism that ends in intimate love in marriage. Why I bring that up is because, is because, who is calling it the Song of Songs? Solomon. Why is that important when I'm mentioning intimate, singular love? Was Solomon himself very singular in his love? No, no. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and here we're going to see him talk about a singular oneness love with a person. 
All right. So why I'm bringing that up is because I look out across this room and there is not a singular person in here that does not have some form or another of either sexual immorality or pain and hurt done upon them in their history or a sexual immorality that they themselves have committed. So often we're going to be completely silent about these things. We're never going to share it with another. I praise God for um, giving the courage and strength of the testimony that we just heard because guess what? The silence of so many whom are even among you is painful. Why I say that is because here you have Solomon who has all this sexual immorality, yet this is essentially, many commentators would say this, this is a book that is actually a book of repentance and healing for him. A book that is leading him to say, I was wrong. I was completely wrong. This is what is beautiful. This is exactly what God created to be good. And this is an echo of Eden. You see, throughout the book, we're going to see a a crazy amount of talk of garden, from wilderness to garden, vineyards, this beautiful fruitfulness. But it's all through the context of repentance and healing. So I say that by way of saying, you've experienced sexual immorality that is done upon you. You have been hurt. You have been broken. You've had things in your heart that are taken away from you. And you yourself, at times, have taken things away from other people. Committing sexual immorality, whatever it might be, So there's healing, there's repentance, there's forgiveness. You're going to hear certain things. And now I'm also going to mention, so you're going to hear, there's many people that are single among us, you're going to hear this crazy intimate nature between a man and a woman in this book. Number one, this book is actually, it's, it's, it's referencing the beauty of the nature of a man and a woman coming together, but it's also picturing Christ in his church. So Christ, the husband in the church, the bride, his intimate pursuit of of the church. And yet I would also make mention that in the midst of singleness, you're also glorifying God. So often I feel like the church does not do a a good service, if you will, to those who are in the midst of their singleness. Um, I think at times it might even be idolatry of marriage. Um, So, when God says in Genesis, it is good that a man not be alone, he's not meaning, well, you've got to get married because then that would mean that Jesus himself did not do something that was good. Would you agree? Well, of course that's not what's happening. What he's saying, it's not good for a man to live in complete solidarity. He was made to be relational, just like the Trinity, the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in and of itself is relational. So we were made not for solidarity, But if you be single in the moment, you are made for singleness in community. And let's even say there are some even among us that may even have an attraction to the very same sex that they hold. I would say the opposite of same-sex attraction is not to then be straight. You don't just try to force yourself into learning how to be straight because this book is also full of crazy, passionate desires. So it's moving your passions and your desires to be lined up with the beauty that God has designed in marriage. So if you have those things, then it's learning the singleness and community and to be able to control with beauty your attractions and desires. 
So, all that by way of introduction, we're going to be looking at the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Now, many people recognize this part to be the, the, the marriage proposal. So often we think of marriage proposals and we think of this really crazy, elaborate sometimes schematic. I remember Kyle, he did his uh, marriage proposal at a hockey game on the first of the year. Uh, well, it was the last of the year and the first of the year. At, it was late at night. Um, but at a hockey game, nonetheless, you know, video camera, pizza boxes, wedding ring, all these different things. He's saying all these things on a mic in front of all these different people. And then some people, they picture a wedding proposal as this crazy, intimate, singular, out-in-the-woods type of moment with a large amount of romanticism that they could never picture even experiencing in front of other people. In the sense of, it is you and me, and you're saying, be mine, and I want to be yours. But then we come to this book and we're about to hear, after all these different parts just leading up to it, of um, beauty talk back and forth, your kisses are like, they're like wine, they're intoxicating and I want more. They just make me just want to completely fall on my knees, I just want more of your kisses. And then her saying, do not gaze at me because I am dark. Because the sun has looked upon me, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Then you've got these insecurities going on. Do you have crazy desires in the midst of insecurities? And then being able to answer those insecurities by the man himself saying in chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 9, I compare you, my love, to a mare. Among Pharaoh's chariots. You see, Pharaoh's chariots are going to be all stallions. And a mare amongst the, char- the, the stallions who are working will be utterly delightful. And he's saying, I'm comparing you to that type of beauty. You say you've been working to the point of ugliness. I say... There's not one who will be able to keep themselves controlled around you. You are that beautiful, my love, in my eyes. So he's answering exactly to the part where she's saying, I feel so insecure. Don't even look at me. And then we get to this point in the book in chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And she is saying, the voice, the voice of my beloved, behold. He comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Crazy. You see these these figures of speech. A gazelle and a young stag leaping over the mountains. A gazelle would be marked by agility and grace, yet speed. You see, she's mentioning here, The voice of my beloved, I'm looking for it, and I see him now. He's coming after me. He's in hot pursuit still. Still. He's answered me according to my deepest insecurities and my deepest hurts and pains, and yet he's still coming after me. I'm looking to hear his voice, and he's coming after me, not walking, as though he's not excited to come see me. And he's not coming after me, running as though I might be able to interpret that as like, I got to get to you before somebody else does, but leaping with entire joy. Leaping is marked with joy, right? If somebody comes at you leaping with agility and grace and fervor, that is them saying, I'm coming towards you with this crazy amount of joy. I can't even control myself. You see, my daughter We've been, uh, we've been listening to a lot of music in our house. and Even when it's completely silent, she will grab the phone and she'll literally just start doing one of these, just dancing around. She's got this sense of crazy joy in her heart. She's not even two years old. This is the picture that we're getting. Crazy joy in the midst of silence. 
And going through even struggles, you got mountains and hills. So these mountains and hills, you can even perceive to be, well, he's going to come to me over all of these hills, these trials, these struggles. He's coming towards me, leaping with, these, with joy through the midst of trouble. So you see him coming, and then it says, Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, plural, plural, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice, which is also plural, so lattice So he came with this crazy joy, pursuing in hot pursuit of this woman. And he's saying, and now she's perceiving him, that he's standing there and he's looking for her. The hot pursuit did not end. Now he's looking through all these windows. He's, I want to see you. I've got something. I got something I've got to ask you. So he's looking through all these different windows to be able to try to find this woman whom he loves. The greatest question that I am trying to put before you in this moment. Do you recall the feeling of what it's like to be desired with purity? Do you know what it feels like even to have somebody desire you? So often we have this sense of aloneness that nobody else cares. I remember listening to uh, some of my old music yesterday, and one of the songs is called I Stand Alone. You see, so often we have the mentality of, well, nobody, nobody could ever possibly love me. Nobody could ever possibly love me. And it's been proven to me, I feel, that nobody has ever even attempted to come after me with intimate desire and pursuit. Especially not like this. Especially not like this. I've never felt like somebody's ever come leaping with joy after me. Going through troubles to try to get to me and then looking through all the windows because they're in hot pursuit wanting to ask me a question. We don't perceive that of ourselves. However, I think that you're doing a great disservice to the one who did pursue you and who asked you to marry him in one of the most craziest ways. You see, a hockey game is pretty cool. doesn't beat a cross, Kyle. doesn't beat a cross. And you want to know what else it doesn't beat? doesn't beat a resurrection from the dead. So what is it like, ask yourself as we go through this text, what is it like to be desired and pursued after with complete intimacy and romanticism, yet with purity? Not as though somebody is just wanting to take from me again and again because maybe my body looks good, but they actually want to give to me. That is the question. Have you been desired with complete purity and pursued after? So, he's looking through the windows and the lattice. This is what she is seeing. And then you get to verse 10. My beloved speaks and says to me. So you recall in the very first part of this text, in verse 8, she's looking out for the voice. And now you start hearing this voice come. My beloved speaks and says to me. Arise, my love, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. This is the marriage proposal. And this isn't the only spot that he says it. He also says it down at, the ver- at verse 13. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. He's saying, look, leave the protection of the home of your father and your mother. Leave your father and your mother, and come away with me. Cleave yourself to me, my love, my beautiful one. 
You see, in that one phrase, my love and my beautiful one, he answers two of the greatest insecurities that she's already been talking about. She's in this huge desire in the very first chapter and part of the second of having this really intimate companionship. And now, you see, he's saying, I'm, I'm the one that wants to be your companion. I'm that one. So he's answering, I am your companion. Then he says, my beautiful one. She's also been saying about herself, look, I'm nothing to look at. I've been working in the vineyard. So my beautiful one is then answering to her unique beauty within his eyes, which he already answered previously. Remember, you were like a lily among the thorns, among the bramble bushes. You are beautiful in my eyes, completely set apart. No one else is like you. This is amazing to me. So you have this this call to leave your father and your mother and come away into the arms of somebody who has already been answering to you, who has been giving you this crazy grace, right? And yet so often we want to trust. We want to trust in the house that we are familiar with. You see, we went down to Planned Parenthood today, and this is actually the exact same text that I preached down there. While we were down there, as I'm preaching, I see through the doors, um, I see through the doors this, this father on the right, and then this mother on the left, and then there's this girl in the middle. And this girl, is, uh, she's, she's got her head hung completely. You, you can't even really necessarily see her face. And as she's being brought out, she's got her arms like this, and she's slung over, if you will, upon her parents. And they're walking out, and these two greeters that are on either side of the door, they, wouldn't, they didn't even open up the door for them. Yet so quickly they opened up the door for the way in. And so she begins to come out, and I lose all speech and thought, and I just say, can I help you? The very person whom she's supposed to find protection in, the very arms of whom she's supposed to find protection, are the very arms in whom have brought her to this point of where she looks completely dead. And then they throw her into the back of the seat, neglecting the call of desire to pray for this person. So quickly you want to be able to trust in the arms of what you're somewhat familiar with. And yet you do not even recognize that the arms of the one who has been giving you the grace all along are the arms that are the only one that can actually be trusted. You see that daughter who is now at the age of being able to bear child has to rely on the arms of the one whom is supposed to protect her, and yet it's the very arms who also led her into the doors that completely destroyed her. And then you come up to these moments in your life where you're saying, well, I can't even trust my parents, so I'll just trust myself, and yet your very own arms are the very own arms that lead you to your own destruction at times. From the cross of Christ and from the resurrection from the grave, Jesus says, come to me. I am pursuing you. Look, I left heaven. I was glorified up there. And then I entered into humanity, which I created, this sinful humanity, which is, which is just completely marred. And then I live completely righteous because guess what? I love you. I love you. And you don't even, you don't even look at me. You want to completely turn your face 
from me. And yet, in this entire time, I have all these sorrows, all this pain. And yet, I am going to then bear your pain and your sorrows. And you're going to say, I don't care. I do well alone. I trust in myself. I don't want to listen to the voice of the one who has said, you're like a lily among the thorns. And yet you want to say, well, I want to stay among the thorns. What? What I mean by this is the one who has graced you with so much is have you actually listened? Have you actually recognized through the 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your life and recognized and seen that yes, there are some days where you have gone without food. However, God still sustained you. There are some days where ah, you might not have had the abundance that you in your selfishness desired, but it was the grace of God that he even gave you what you had. Or in those moments, in the deepest and darkest time, in the deepest and darkest times where we're thinking about suicide, it is the grace of God that he has kept you alive. To bring you to the point to be able to hear, my love, my beautiful one. Come away with me. And he says, for behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs. And the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. He's calling into mind, look, the winter, which feels so desolate. It feels like a wilderness. It feels like there is no good thing it's going away. Your suffering and your hurts and your pains are going to be going completely away. Why? Take a look. Look around. The fragrance is there. You're going to be able to see all of the fruit. He's, he's calling upon the intimate senses of the person whom he's saying, my love, my beautiful one. He's saying, look, I'm encountering you. Don't be ignorant. You know what's happening all around you. And guess what? It's actually pointing to new creation. Spring. You see, the winter is past. The rain is gone. Things are in blossom. It's beautiful. It smells amazing. It also, it also feeds into, I am actually seeing that there's, there's fruit. He's caring for me. So he's saying, the time is now. I don't want to wait forever for an answer because I am still in hot pursuit of you. So let me ask you again, as I'm in hot pursuit of you, and I, I know that you don't have forever, and I know that one of these days I'm going to be coming for a marriage feast. I'm in hot pursuit. Arise, my love, my beautiful one. Come away. So he says it again, verse 13. Then he says in verse 14, Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock. You see, a dove, we've got, we've got a bird feeder over at our house. And these two doves, um, they're really unique. They come up. Uh, they're really beautiful. But in the fact that doves are unique, 
is because they don't really have these like crazy, crazy sharp claws, nor do they have teeth. They don't really have, they don't have defense mechanisms, if you will. So they're seen as like these really beautiful creatures that are seemingly helpless and hopeless to be able to fend off other than their fleeing mechanism. And they're also marked by being timid, if you will, hence the fleeing. So if something comes up that they feel threatened by, they're going to run away from them. So if they feel vulnerable as romance, and probably even right now as you're listening to a sermon through Song of Solomon, as, they, as these doves feel vulnerable, they'll flee. So he's saying, my dove in the clefts of the rock. So stop hiding yourself in the crannies of the cliff. And then he goes on, he says, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. It's crazy. That word face there is really important. Um, this is the only time that face is ever trans, that Hebrew word is ever translated as face. All the other times it's either translated as appearance or form. So now he's addressing again the very depth of her insecurity. She said that she's not worth being looked at. So he says, let me see your appearance, your form. I want to see the depths of you. I want to hear your very voice. And why is because for your voice is sweet and your appearance or your form is lovely. Do you hear these words coming from Jesus' mouth to you? Do you hear the words and the thoughts of Jesus saying, I want to see you. I want to see your, your appearance and your form. I want you to be open with me. And not only that, I desire to hear your voice. So often we think that prayer is like going to God as a genie rather than going to God as a lover. Right? Do this for me, please. rather than recognizing Jesus saying, I want to hear your voice. It's, it's sweet to me. I want to, I want to actually be as intimate as possible in the here and now as we're in between the inauguration and the consummation of the age. I want to be as intimate as possible with you until then without going against our covenant. I want to see your inner person. Show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet. Your face is lovely. And then verse 15, you see, he says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. Now, this is a very peculiar verse. You see, towards the end of the verse, he's calling upon something that he knows that she is very familiar with, tending to a vineyard, all the work that would go into it, all the toil, all the time, the sweat, the darkening of the skin. And so he's addressing that directly to her mind and then saying, look, you also know what it's like to have a fox in there. Not just any fox. What kind of fox? Little foxes. Little denoting by an adjective saying, Really, these things are of no, uh, no value, really. You shouldn't just worry about keeping them in there to care for them or to pet these foxes. Have you ever pet a fox? I know I haven't. I don't really want to. I don't really want to. Why? It's because they'll probably bite you. 
What is a fox going to do to a vineyard? What is a fox going to do to a vineyard that is in blossom? Not only that, what is a fox going to do to a vineyard that is in blossom that is denoted by our vineyards? You see, this man has already said, I, I love you this much that I'm going to say that our desire is in blossom. These foxes would come in and destroy that. These are the lies of the enemy to tell you, focus on your, in, your, your infirmities or your, your badness, all these different things that you condemn yourself about. How often do you do that? You start saying, well, you know, Jesus, not really worth or worthy to come before you because I've got all this junk. Or, well, Jesus, I'm not really desirable. So, I'm just going to neglect all that you've just said to me. How often do you receive some sort of commendation or like, hey, you do this really well? Or, look, ladies, from your spouse saying, hey, You're greatly beautiful in my eyes. Or in Zephaniah 3.17, where Jesus is actually saying about you that he's rejoicing and singing over you, praises over you. And yet you're going to say, well, well, foxes, not worth it. I'm going to let them eat this vineyard that is yet in blossom because I want to ignore your words. I want to ignore your words. I'm going to listen about my suffering and how I've been abused and I'm going to let that destroy me. You see, earlier, lies were told, right? You're going to be like your father, an alcoholic. You're worth nothing. Worth nothing. Or you even have the American culture that for you ladies, you can't even walk through a grocery aisle without seeing the image of God upon a woman defiled. And I, as a man, apologize to you for the reprehensible way that men have treated women. And then you let that fox come in as you're going through just the grocery aisle just to cash out and you say, well, I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it. And yet you're not looking forward to the fact that, wait, I'm not defined by that. My worth is in what God has said about me, in him calling me his beloved, in his, his beautiful one. Now, why you let the foxes, let me, let me take a stab here. Why you let these foxes settle in and make a bunch of nests, fox nests around your vineyard to destroy your vineyard so that way you want to dwell among these thorns? is because you feel that you are not to be desired by anybody ever. Am I right? I'm not desirable. Not not only am I not desirable, I don't know what it's like to even feel desired by somebody. I don't know what it feels like to be pursued. So this, him coming at me saying, Beloved, my beautiful one, hurry up, give me an answer, come away, leave your parents. I want to protect you. I want to care for you. I want to shower you with the overflow of my love because I cannot contain it. My desire is for you and you only. And you say, I am not to be desired though. And he says, 
get those foxes out. You see, this is what Paul meant in Philippians 3. Where he says, I count all things as rubbish, as dung, as crap, compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ, my Lord. Because even the good things could be foxes, right? You'll say, well, I'll define myself by what I look like, even if I look good. Because then I might be a little bit desirable. But guess what? It's rubbish compared to knowing Christ, who is saying to you, my beloved, my beautiful one. Who is saying that out of his own grace. Look, look, look. This is crazy. She had a desire. She says, your kisses would be like wine, you know? I really want you, but I'm not desirable. And then he says, no, no, I got my eye on you. I've got my eye on you. I've not only got my eye on you, I've only got my eye on you. And he continues on. He says, not only do I only have my eye on you, I want to make my covenant with you. This means that I don't want anybody else but you. So not only are you desirable, you alone to me are desirable. Why? Is because of my love for you, which is just my love for you. You see, in Deuteronomy, Yahweh said of the people of Israel, I love you just because I love you, not because you're some great people. I just love you because I love you. What he's saying to you. I just love you because I love you. And you want to know how he said it? He said it in the greatest, most magnificent way upon the cross. It was completely accurate when he said, look, pretty rare for even somebody to give up their life for a friend, let alone an enemy. But so often we want to say, well, I wasn't an enemy of God. Well, yes, you were. Yes, you were. You want to listen to these foxes real quick. Guess what that makes you? Not part of the covenant if you want to listen to foxes. But he's saying, get rid of these foxes. Listen to my words. Listen to the truth that I'm telling you. I rejoice over you. But guess what? I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to dress you up as my bride. I'm going to care for you. And guess what? I'm going to embrace you. A lot of times we don't like thinking about our relationship with Jesus in that intimate type of detail. Guess what? It is. Why it's called the consummation is very important. When Jesus returns, he's, we're actually going to be very intimate with Jesus. I don't know what that's going to look like. But I know that it's got this imagery and intimacy that is euphoria and ecstasy comparable to the oneness covenant of a man and a woman in marriage that is experienced on a body level, a soul level, and a spirit level. Your mind, your emotions, and your physical nature all being brought together at one point with Jesus at the end of the age. And he's saying, get rid of these foxes so that way we can experience this. So then all this begs the question, well, what's she going to say? You know, you're always waiting. Okay, so this is the marriage proposal. And everybody's like waiting at the basketball game. You know, you see a couple of them, they like, they throw the high five to the face. They say no. So you're like, oh, is it going to happen? Is, is she going to say yes? And so we get the answer. My beloved is mine and I am his. My beloved is mine and I am his. It's very intimate possession, if you will, right? You got 1 Corinthians 7 where he's talking about, look, your body is not your own. 
Be selfless with it. So Jesus, you think this through, in the depths of his love, gave up all so that way he could garner you as a bride, the church. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross, despising the shame, putting the shame away. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross. Think that through. What's that joy there? What's that joy? Right. Eternity with his bride. Think it through. When he enters into humanity, lives that perfect righteous life, and then goes upon the cross, buried for three days, resurrects from the dead, spends 40 days, and he says, look, I'm going to give you my spirit. So that way, during, from this time when I asked you to marry me to the, the consummation of the age, that way you can sense my presence. That way we can be as close and as intimate as possible. Until then, I want you. I want you. My beloved is mine. I am his. So he already said, I've given up myself to you. I've given up myself. That's why she can immediately say, my beloved is mine. He's mine. He's nobody else's. Nobody else's. This oneness covenant. And then you say, well, it doesn't just stop there. I am his. So often, you see in Christendom, Somebody will say a prayer or they'll make some sort of perfunctory action that then they begin to say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. But then their life looks completely other than I am his. What does it mean to be I am his? I am his is not saying well, let's follow 613 laws. That's not what it's saying. I am his is neither even denoting, well, you know, I'll follow a good portion of those rules at least if I look good enough. I am his is stating, I love you too. I am devoted to you. And by faith, by faith, not by law, I'm going to run after you, Jesus. Do you, do you automatically think that way, or do you begin to say, well, he'll love me more if I do these things, and also he'll love me more if I don't do these things. Guess what? That's a fox. He said, I love you because I love you. And you already stated, my beloved is, is mine. Which then means, if he's yours, if he's already given himself over to oneness with you, then that then means your devotion to him is also singular. Saying, well, I'm not going to love another. I can't love another. Nobody else has ever desired me like this. You see, your drugs, addictions, have never showed a pursuit of desire like you just heard. Your desire for intimacy in relations outside of marriage have never desired you selflessly like you just heard. You see, all those typically, typically, um, 10 times out of 10 outside of what Jesus just did, um, are all taking. They're all taking. What I mean by that is somebody is going to you, and I saw this today. As I'm down at Planned Parenthood, I see this man. He's dragging this girl in through the doors. And I said, this guy is just taking from you. He says, I will sleep with you. I will be gratified by you. 
And then when the blessing comes because the Bible says that children are blessings, so therefore you better think about them that way, Christian. When the blessing comes, they say, well, I only wanted the pleasure. Um, I didn't want that. I didn't want the kid. And yet so quickly, they won't communicate that to, oh, he's just taking. Or you want to be the one who's taking. What? You want to try to compete with the Lord of glory? The one who has eyes of flaming fire? If you want to take from an image bearer of God, their very love that he says that is only due to him, you want to take that from him? Well, guess what? We'll come to you. He will rip the goodness in the image of God off from you so quick in the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, and he will damn you to hell if you continue to take. And he will be just and glorified in doing so. Why I bring that up is because so often we only look at one side of it. We don't think about the aspect of, oh, we could be taking. We could be actually trying to compete with Jesus. Well, guess what? There's no competition. He's already got victory from the resurrection from the dead. Not even death has a stronghold upon him. And look, 10 out of 10 of us will die in this room. That means every single person in this room has death in our future. But every single person also in this room has a resurrection in their future. It's just a matter of, is it the glory and righteousness or judgment and unrighteousness? Because Jesus has conquered death. And so you stand no chance against him. So stop taking. And if you're being taken from, look with your eyes upon the one who only is a giver. Think this through. In order to obtain you, Jesus gave his life. In order to obtain you, Jesus gave his very righteous life for you. He pursued you. So he says, she says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes, he grazes among the lilies. This is really beautiful language because guess what? She says that she's not even worth being gazed upon in chapter one. I'm not even worthy being gazed upon. And now she's saying, look, you want to see my appearance, my form? You want to hear my voice? Okay, I'll make myself vulnerable to you. This hurts. I don't make myself vulnerable to people, but I'm going to make myself vulnerable to you because you have called me beloved and you've called me the beautiful one. You've made it known to me that I'm only wanted by you. Nobody else has ever talked to me this way. Not only that, you alone are only talking to me alone like this. So she's saying here, he grazes among the lilies. Because he's already marked out in his mind. You're like a lily among the thorns. You're like a lily among the thorns. And she's saying, be intimate with me. Come as close as you can to me. Know my very inner being. Later on, you'll even see in the book of Song of Solomon, that lilies are very intimate body parts. But mind you, this is still only the marriage proposal. 
So she's saying, well, guess what? Not only am I making myself vulnerable to you, my desire, yes, is for you too. My desire is for you. My beloved is mine and I am his. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn my beloved, be like a gazelle, that agility, that running towards me, that pursuit, that desire after me that I feel like nobody else has ever given me, that desire, run after me continually until that day when you and I get to be in the marriage bed together. And a young stag on, a cl- on cleft mountains. There's no cleft mountains in Israel, in geography. But guess what? He's speaking about a body part. Privately about her own body part. Be as close as you can with me. And then she goes on into chapter three. This is a really, this gets really crazy. It says, on my bed by night. It's better translated, on my bed, night after night. It's got this sense of, of continual. On my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. And you're going to see this line continually be brought up. Whom my soul loves, I sought after him. I sought him, but found him not. So this is a dream. Night after night, it's coming to her. In her mind, she's, she's like, I, all I want is him right now. My soul, my very mind, and my very heart, my emotions, they're, they're encompassed with thinking about him. So this is like unto the Christian walk. Jesus says, marry me. I want you. I went to the cross for you. I gave my entire life for you. And I just love you because I love you. I didn't just go to the cross. I actually rose from the dead. As first fruits. So that way you yourself can actually experience the senses, the fragrance. You see that earlier. The fragrance, the the sight, the hearing of the voice. All your senses are going to be sensing this first fruits, the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul often, he says, live in light of the resurrection. That is your exhortation to holiness and your exhortation to love of Christ is the resurrection from the dead. And so he's saying, look, I've pursued you and I love you. Seek after me. Now you see in the very night moments, in her dreams, she's saying, I sought him whom my soul, my emotions, my inner being, my mind, all my thoughts, I can't control it. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city. Still a dream. She used to live, she lives in a, uh, on the country, on the Hicks. And now she's talking about a city. Still a dream. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. This is relentless. I'm going to seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. So she didn't find him just lying in her bed. She didn't find him going out into the streets. And then she says, the watchmen found me as they went about this in the city. So these watchmen are supposed to know everything about the city. And then she says, have you seen him whom my soul loves? She's going around and saying, all I want is him. I can't even control myself. But she doesn't say, have you seen Solomon? She's describing him by the very depths and inner workings of her heart and mind. Have you seen this one who went to the cross for me? Look, he bled and completely died for me. And then he was, he was tormented by the wrath of God. All the while, he didn't, he didn't deserve an ounce of it because he lived a completely righteous life. And while he lived this righteous life, he gave me all these pictures of like healings and, and raising people from the dead and then even weeping. I don't even know what it's like to understand that God weeps over those who completely reject him. You see, he weeped over Jerusalem. You don't understand, and I say this with authority, you don't understand that God himself weeps 
Yes, Jesus is God. Yes, Jesus wept. He weeps. Your sin grieved God because it's saying that you desire to be tied to another. I don't even understand what it's like to understand that God is weeping over me. So therefore, I'm going to seek him. I want to find him. I'm going to even go to the watchman. I'm going to tell them, look, this is the one whom my soul loves. I'm going to speak about him as in my inner being, in my mind, in my mind. And then he goes on, but scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loved. So in her night of nights, night after night after night after night of thinking and thinking and thinking about him, as she answers yes to this marriage proposal, waiting for the day, waiting for that day, when I found him whom my soul, my emotions loved, I held him. Held is a really sucky word. doesn't describe it. The word actually means to cling to, to grasp onto, to, to, to hold without ever desiring to let go, to grasp so tightly. To grasp so tightly that it would almost hurt. That's like the depth of that word right there. And yet they use held. I don't know why. They should have used clung or something more. So again, in Hebrews Twelve. It actually says to cling to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. So she's saying, I held on to him, I clung to him, and would not let go until I had brought him into my mother's house. The word is actually singular, my mother house, which would denote a crazy amount of intimacy. Because it goes on to say, and into the chamber of her who conceived me. So often in Christianity, we make desires for another out to be sinful. Yes, lust is sinful. Desires and passion like this is an echo of Eden. an echo of Eden in a hot pursuit waiting for that day of being so intimate in one that you can barely control yourself so much so that you will say in the very next line I adjure you O daughters of Jerusalem by the gazelles or the does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases, or until it's right, until it's in that covenant. This is where the Christian life is. In this crazy, hot pursuit now after the one who, is in a, who was in a crazy and is in a crazy, hot pursuit of you, who gave up his entire life running after you. Why? Because of the overflowing of his grace and love and mercy. No other way would have been able to even comprehend an ounce, let alone two ounces, of his grace and his love to give up his own very life, his own righteous life, to be entering into his own humanity, than to conquer and have victory, and overcome the very thing of death, which is a curse. And then to say not only that, I'm going to adorn you in jewels. I'm going to adorn you in white, in clothing. And I am going to give you my righteousness. And I am going to make you a co-heir with me. For eternity. Enter into the joy of your master. Why? Guess what? Your master desires. Your creator 
actually desires you? Are you desirable? Yeah. You're made in the image of God. Therefore, God desires you. And how did he show his desire for you? All of the sin that has ever been done to you, and all the sin that you yourself have done, he says, I'm going to take it on myself. I'm going to run to the cross with joy. Joy because I'm going to retrieve you. I'm going to seek and save that which was lost. Your creator, Jesus, is in hot pursuit of you. And so your response is to night after night after night after night be craving the deepest of intimacy. You see those times in your prayer closet when you have these crazy supernatural, mind you, we're charismatic here. I don't care, what, I don't care if you guys are a cessationist. You're wrong. Those times of crazy intimacy in the prayer closet when you are closest and nearest to God, when he says, I love you, hear my voice, I want to be with you. Or when he gives you a word in your mind or even just a scripture, a simple scripture like Zephaniah 3.17 or somebody texts you and says, how is your joy? Guess what? Those times of nearness, this is the beauty. Those times of nearness are a glimpse of the euphoria and ecstasy that is to be had upon that day of consummation at the end of the age. It's only more beautiful in the walk with Christ. He desired you. Your response, my beloved is mine, and I am his. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your pursuit of us. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, the cross, the resurrection from the dead. God, the fact that you are ruling and reigning upon your throne and you're calling people to yourself, God, through your love. Through your love saying, I heal of your sin. God, you're saying to us that you heal the sin committed against us. God, let us not be ignorant. Let us not be thinking that we're not desired by you. God, all these different foxes that are tearing up a a vineyard, God, help us throw those off to the side that we not listen to them, but God, that we would listen to your truth, that God, we would listen to your words. And God, that we would settle and rest in and desire you, that we would be crying out to the entire world, where is the one whom my soul loves? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, proclaiming the kingdom of God for the sake of the city. For more resources, visit cell53.com.